Welcome to the Eclectic Highway. My name is Kelly Senecal, and today I have Robert Wagner from Oak Ridge National Laboratory as my guest. Now, last episode was a little different. I did a solo episode, and I got some pretty good feedback. I think I'll do that periodically. But now I'm back to my regular format, and I couldn't be happier than to have Robert as my guest. Robert and I have known each other for many years. Uh, I always have a lot of fun talking to him about all sorts of different topics. So let's just get right into the interview. Here we go. So Robert, for people who don't know you, can you talk a little bit about your background and what you're doing now? Sure. Thanks, Kelly. My background is in combustion and fuels, and my early work was very focused on combustion instability mechanisms. So when you have, say, high cycle-to-cycle variations under very dilute conditions, I was looking at what drives that, the deterministic and stochastic structure. And since then, I've continued to work some in that area and then more in low-temperature combustion and fuels area. So, so more recently, my, my role has evolved in, I'd say, more management, but technical management. And I have several, several jobs, really. I'm the director of the National Transportation Research Center, which is at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And it's the Department of Energy's only user facility focused on transportation technology. So it's a really exciting facility. It's very broad and deep. Um, I'm also uh, the ORNL Lab Relationship Manager at the Department of Energy for Combustion and Fuels Research. And basically what that means is I'm the point person to DOE and manage our programs with DOE. And then third, but probably uh, the most fun, is I'm the overall lead for the Department of Energy Co-Optimization of Fuels and Engines Initiative, which is a a very large team. It's, It's nine national laboratories, 20 universities. Um, and so it's a real honor to be uh, the lead of that. But I, I also work on that with very distinguished leadership teams. So it, it's, it's really a joint effort. A couple of episodes ago, I talked to Gina about the Co-Optima project. And I do want to maybe touch base on that again a little bit later in the interview. So we'll come back to that. Um, but I do in every episode, and I'm going to say it again, I, I wish I could stop asking this question. But, you know, we are still in this pandemic situation. Um how has it changed your life? How has COVID-19 kind of changed, you know, sort of your daily routine? So when it, it first started, um, the laboratory uh, immediately sent most people home. Not all. Um, for example, at the NTRC, we still had technicians in place with the proper controls. And then for, for probably two months, um, I was at home. Now I'm back about 50% time. And we've also started to rotate the researchers back in. Actually, we've been doing that for a couple of months. So right now, if I were to go walk the building, there is people in the laboratories running experiments, although it, it's a reduced crew from what we're normally um, would have in the building. So, you know, the science goes on. Um, we're just more controls in place, more careful, routine testing. Um, for example, yesterday I went uh, at ORNL to get tested for COVID-19, just, just as a precaution every few weeks. We check in and everything was fine. So the, the laboratory's really done a great job, I think, of, of pausing when all this started and then slowly getting us back to work. Yeah, it sounds like they've done a great job. So that, that's really good to hear. So this is the Eclectic Highway, this podcast. And so, as you know, I talk a lot about my opinions and also my guests' opinions on what the future of transportation looks like, right? Because we know we are in a a time right now where there is a lot of change. 
So I'm curious, where do you see the future of internal combustion engines for light duty applications? So for, you know, cars on the road, basically. And what do you think the fleet might look like in, say, 2050? I think it'll be a mix. I know that's an easy answer because then, you know, what is that mix? I think we'll definitely see increased electric vehicles. How could we not? The progress has been tremendous. There certainly are um, great applications for that. But I still think we'll see a lot of internal combustion engines and hybrids. In the, at the end of the day, the regulatory requirements and consumer requirements are going to drive most of this. Um, but we have to have the technology um, to get there. And I, I think that's moving. I think it's really an exciting time for all of us. I know you talk about uh, the importance of electric, the importance of combustion, and, and then hybridization. There's some exciting things to be done with hybridization. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so you're not going to give me an actual number for 2050? <laughs> No, I, I do not have a. We, we can Very point smart. you. We can point you at, at all the projections. I will say that all of the projections, at least all the projections I've seen, show a lot of liquid fuel being part of transportation out to 2050. Um, but a lot could disrupt that. It, it's hard to tell. Um, bat, batteries have moved at, I think, a pace that most people wouldn't have imagined, and. You know, let's face it, electric vehicles are really a, a certainly an interesting technology, um, but I really think it's going to be driven by a lot of different requirements, consumer requirements being a big part of that. Yeah, agreed. Now, I will say, though, I did see a projection a couple of weeks ago, and I posted about this on LinkedIn just to see what people thought, but it was a projection saying that by 2026, 100% of new cars sold would be battery electric. And they were attributing this to something called the Osborne effect. Have you heard much about this? No, I've not. That's that's good. You don't need to. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so okay, but yeah, there are lots of different projections out there, and you know, probably all of them are wrong. But um, but I do agree with you. Uh, liquid fuels are going to be around for a long time, and we'll we'll touch base on that a little bit more uh, later on in the interview as well. Now, this next question I have for you is. I don't want to say it's controversial, but it's something that comes up a lot, both for in, inside of the IC engine world when we talk about, you know, what is the maximum efficiency we can expect, but then also when people who are kind of talking against IC engines say, well, look, you can only get to a maximum efficiency of X, Y, or Z. Um, I want to ask you what your take is on this. How far can we go? What is the maximum thermal efficiency we can expect and if you want to, you may even touch base on, on the, Carnot, the Carnot limit and, and how that pertains to internal combustion engines. So maybe I'll start with that. Um, I understand why people initially think this could be limited by Carnot, but, but it simply isn't. And I know at least for the last decade, there's been a number of interesting papers and presentations that go into why this isn't, um, isn't the case. But you will find old textbooks, I'll say for competing technologies, like there was a fuel cell textbook that, that said it in the textbook, that IC engines are limited by Carnot, and, and they're an open cycle. They're not limited by Carnot. With that said, you know, the, the next question was, what's the, what's the peak efficiency we might expect to see? And this is uh, a number I've said before. I've heard others say it as well. Um, but but some people think it's not credible. I think with waste heat recovery, lab setting, I'll say heavy truck size, 
60%, somebody's going to see that break. I'm going to say break too. I'm not going to say indicated. Will it ever be on the, uh, out on the road? I don't know. But I think these numbers are, are possible with everything that's happened in technology. Again, I'm not saying it's cost effective or robust, um, but I think we'll see these things. But I'd also argue that except for over-the-road trucks, you know, peak thermal efficiency is, is not uh, not where I would put my focus. I'd put my focus on the part load efficiency. Engines are pretty darn efficiency, efficient in the peak range, but the part load, there's still lots of opportunity. Maybe you handle that with electrification. Um, maybe you balance it out that way. Um, but that's where there's a lot of opportunity. The 60% number is interesting, though, because I've, I've said it at meetings before. And again, I'm not saying we're there. But it, it's, a, it's a number to target. It's a stretch goal. And some people will say, you'll lose credibility saying that. And other people will say, right on. And they're people I respect all of them. So it's... it's yeah, no, I know what you're jam. saying. I know what you're saying. And, and, and kind of along that note, um, and what your, what your points were on the Carnot efficiency at the beginning of your answer there. So I was in uh, Switzerland at one of these IEA combustion uh, task meetings. And we were getting into little groups and talking about what we thought we should be focusing on for combustion research. And I made the statement in that little group that the IC engine is not limited by the Carnot efficiency. And people looked at me like I was crazy. And that became like the joke of, of the conference or of the meeting. <laughs> they kept saying that, you know, Kelly says Carnot's dead or, you know, it just it was funny. But I, I wanted to specifically ask you that question because... I already knew your take on it, and I kind of wanted other people to hear that too because because I think you're absolutely correct on that. So, okay, so yeah. so uh, can I add ahead. one more thing yeah, on, on Carnot? Though, in my mind, the person that is the ultimate authority in thermodynamics in this space is David Foster from University of Wisconsin, and he he's given several really good presentations on this, and and I would encourage people to Google those and look them up. Um, they're they're really well done and, and walk you through um, why it's not Carnot. And that's not the point of the presentation, but it, it becomes obvious as you go through the presentation. Right. And I, I, yeah, fortunately, I had the pleasure of having Professor Foster for a few different classes there at the UW. So I know what you're saying. He is, he's great. And I, I highly recommend those lectures as well. Perfect. Okay. Now this next question, I'm not trying to date you or anything or <laughs> make not <laughs> either way. <laughs> um, but how have you seen engine research change over the last, let's just say two decades? I mean, I know it's changed a lot. I can give my opinions on this, but I really want to hear from your angle. How do you see it's changed? Okay. That's a great question. And it's, it's a fun one because it's such been such an exciting time the last couple of decades. If you go back couple decades to the 90s, which is when I did my graduate work. I mentioned earlier my backgrounds in combustion instabilities and understanding instability mechanisms. And, and back then, we were we thought this was so important because what it did was it gave you an opportunity for short, we thought, an opportunity for short-term prediction under very unstable conditions. And if you could do that, perhaps you could stabilize systems that were very unstable, say at high dilution, very lean, things like that. But it was really greeted at the time as an academic curiosity um, because technology just wasn't there. And, and I don't think anybody ever thought it would be there, or at least affordable, let me put it that way. So flash forward to today, sensors are amazing. You know, we were talking about putting pressure transducers in, in engines or, or some measure of pressure, however you want to do that, 
onboard computing power is almost unimaginable. Um, you can buy a couple teraflop onboard computer, water-cooled, maybe it's even better since I have this data, for, for say, under $10,000. I actually think it's like $5,000. If you go back to 1997, a teraflop machine was $55 million. And now we're going to put them in cars. So now we have really all the onboard computing power we can imagine. Uh, flexible components. I remember the first time I watched a presentation on uh, variable valve systems that were intended for a production um, vehicle. It was a research uh, report out, I think, at a DOE meeting. Yeah, I thought how amazing that would be, but I don't know how that would ever happen. Well, now it's it's commonplace. And the latest dimension to this, to me, is is hybridization. So now, you know, we, we have all this control over the engine. We have all this control over the electrical side if we have a hybrid. Imagine the degrees of freedom you have here to do things. It, it's just incredible. Yeah, d- definitely, definitely. So, um, you know, I've, I've seen you give uh, a number of talks over the years, and something that um, I've come away with is you talk about how historically innovation has driven technology, but now technology is driving innovation. So in the space that we're talking about here in the transportation world, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so this is another area I'm, I'm very interested in. It's sort of the history of technologies. And, and so one that uh, I find interesting is back in the 50s, uh, Mercedes put out direct injection gasoline, and it it just really didn't work. And, and a lot of the problems were injector technology, power electronics. It just wasn't there. You just really couldn't do it well. 70s, Ford pushed hard with it. I don't know if you remember um, reading about the Proco engine and those programs. Really I'm, too young. I'm, I'm too young for that. Sorry. <laughs> Actually, I am too. I, I read it as uh, not too <laughs> Yeah, we, we won't go there. We'll, we'll, we'll sure. On. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but anyway, and then then you look today and, and I mean, it's commonplace. And, and even in the 90s, we didn't think it would be commonplace. So we've always had this innovation and it's taken a long time to get here. Um, the combustion controls I just talked about uh, as an example. Low temperature combustion. I always go back to the SAE paper from 1983 by Natch and Foster on HCCI combustion. It's, you know, it's more than 30 years later and we're, heck, it's almost 40 years later and we're still not having it in production. So the innovation was there, um, but the technology to do it wasn't there and, and maybe it's, it's not fully there yet for some innovations. But now going back to the, the previous question where we can do an amazing amount of things now with the engine that we have all this technology, what are we going to do with it? Uh, what can we do with it? And this is where I think uh, a lot of recent work and I'll say deep learning and artificial intelligence is going to have a role. We have all this technology to implement now, these really advanced controls that we've kind of always dreamed of. And even model-based controls, we have the onboard computing power to do this. Um, can we do intracycle control of the combustion process? You know, are things getting fast enough for that? So, so now it's like we have a lot of big hammers. Um, what are we going to do with them? Yeah, exactly. So my follow-up to that, and you've kind of already hit on some of these topics, but, you know, there being at a national laboratory, I'm kind of jealous because, you know, at these national labs, you have so much big science, we'll say, going on, right? And you have you have just all of these different fascinating science topics, and you guys can collaborate with each other and learn from each other. And really, we can take a lot of those big science ideas and bring them into our field and help redefine what's possible. 
right? And so how do you see big science helping redefine what's possible? So this, this might sound kind of silly, but my view on, on all these big science tools, uh, I always think about this, and, and maybe you'll edit this out if it's too silly, but I, I always think about what it is gaining us its ability to see the unseeable, solve the unsolvable, solvable, and build the unbuildable. And more recently with AI, it's, it's sort of controlling the uncontrollable. So all these things that we thought, that I thought, maybe it's being an engineer, maybe the scientists didn't think this, things I didn't think we could ever do, we're, we're doing now. And there'll be more. We're just on the tip of the iceberg. And, and let me give you an example. There was some recent work um, that Oak Ridge did, and I could give you examples from other labs too. It's just I'm at Oak Ridge, so I know this work, where they were using neutrons and neutron diffractometry to measure um, time-resolved strain in the head of an engine while it was running in the beam line. And to me, that's amazing. They're looking at a new alloy. They're doing these measurements. And that led to a new project that we have with DOE where we're uh, going to build a purpose-built um, engine. We call it a neutronic engine uh, to run in the beam line. The, the first one we did was just simple air-cooled. We could cast the head easy. It was a bit of uh, proof of principle. And, and now we're going to embrace that and, and really try to do more on more relevant geometries. So things like that, I, I think, are really amazing. Um, the added to manufacturing capabilities have increased where, you know, you can build the heat exchangers with AI-inspired um, channels. So maybe it's something you couldn't manufacture any other way. People are doing interesting things with pistons. There was just an article from Porsche recently. So we're, we're doing things that I really think even five years, five years ago for some of these, couldn't even imagine we'd be able to do it. So what's the next five, 10, 20 years going to look like? I'm with you. And not only am I going to not edit that out, I think that might become my new ringtone. So <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I'm definitely not editing that out. That was, no, I agree with you. And, you know, it's just amazing the kinds of things we can do now. And, and it's hard to really imagine, yeah, five, 10 years down the road, what are we going to be able to do that we can't do today? So it's a really and, exciting time. And you know what's so neat about it, Kelly, is so this is just what I know about Oak Ridge that we're doing. And there's 17 national laboratories, and you look across them, and I, I look at uh, our friends at Argonne and with the Advanced Photon Source and, and people like Shabindu um, who I know you work with a lot um, doing things on the supercomputers and the optical engines out at, at Sandia. Um, and the kinetics work at Livermore and just across the labs. It's just amazing when you put all this together. It is amazing. And that, that nicely kind of leads into the next thing I wanted to ask you. And it goes back to the Cooptima project that you talked about earlier. Um, you know, DOE is taking, it's kind of really focusing these days on some really large collaborative projects across all labs. Because like you said, there are a lot of expertise at these different labs, just imagine putting all of that knowledge together. What are the great things we could come up with, right? So one of those projects is the Cooptima, uh, which we've already referred to, and I talked to Gina about a few weeks ago. The other one is called PACE, and those are two projects. Can you talk about the goals of those two projects and how the various labs are contributing? So with Cooptima, it, it's really about delivering foundational science for fuel and engine technologies to achieve uh, improvements in efficiency, environmental, economic goals. 
And so it's combining all the expertise, not of only the labs, but two different DOE offices, the Vehicle Technologies Office and the Bioenergy Technologies Office. And that's really exciting, too, because a lot of us, you know, we our, our primary customer is one or the other. And they're, they're different offices with different objectives. And the fact that they've joined forces and then the laboratory teams under them have also joined forces to take on these problems, it's kind of a new day. And everybody has a uh, has a, a strong role there's and Coptima has nine national laboratories and i mentioned some of the capabilities uh, of them but sandia i mean they're extremely well known in, in combustion and optical engines and sprays livermore kinetics fast solvers argon modeling combustion lca they do a lot of that type of work for us which i i wasn't as aware of that work until Cooptima. oak ridge combustion mission controls neutron work uh, NREL fuel science, ignition quality, PNNL fuel science, and they also do um, a lot of LCA and TEA. So everybody's bringing something to this. Uh, and, and then I missed a few labs in there just because I didn't go on and on, but uh, it, it's really a, an interesting team of people. And it, it when we started this back in 2014 was the first meeting I went to. The labs were collegial, but they didn't collaborate well. Um, we're competitors. I mean, let's let's face it. There's some overlapping capabilities, which um, at the time were more competitive with each other, and, and Cooptima has helped us to work together better. Uh, it, it's really a completely different world than we we had back then. Uh, I'll give you an example. When I was first working on this, when we were standing it up, I put together my annual plan uh, for Oak Ridge. And we didn't share these openly to the other labs, but I needed to get the other labs to share theirs with me because I was collecting them for the team. <laughs> and I had to send mine first. And, and people have heard me tell this story maybe way too many times, but I do. It's very vivid. I remember sitting there, email written, my spreadsheet attached, thinking about it, and hitting the button and sending it on its way. And the other labs reciprocated. Um, and that's what I was wanting. You know, I, I have to show mine first and, and that's fine. You know, I'm asking for something and I think it was the start of a new day and, and, and it's great. I really enjoy all the interactions with other labs at times, even, uh, you know, if there's some issue or some bit of research that needs to get done, it's not uncommon for one lab to say, Hey, I think this other lab would be really good for that. They have that capability. Uh, so, all right, I won't drone on, but I'm really excited about where we are. Yeah, I am too. I mean, I, as you know, I work pretty closely with some of the different labs and, and I, I've kind of seen that tra transition even as an outsider looking in, right? Where it did, I did get the feeling that there was a time when it was more of a competing environment. And definitely over the last few years, it's, it's kind of t totally turned around. And I think that's the way it should be. I mean, think about all the things you guys can accomplish working together, right? Um, and I think you are accomplishing in these programs. Uh, so that's really cool. Did you hit on Pace at all in there? No, no, I didn't. So Pace is a multi-lab um, uh, consortium as well. Uh, the overall lead for it is is Paul Miles out of Sandia, and then he has a, a leadership team, um, which includes Shibendu Sam from Argonne, Jim Shebist from Oakridge, Matt McNinley from Lawrence Livermore, uh, and they've done a great job of uniting the labs too. It's it's this is all Vehicle Technologies office. Um, but it's very focused. And the whole idea to this is to really pull together the, the science strengths of the lab, similar to, to what I was talking about, 
but they're one to combine unique experiments, world-class DOE computing, and machine learning is also a big part about, of this to accelerate um, discovery and tools and, and ultimately enable what they consider to be market competitive uh, powertrain solutions. So it's, it's very focused um, in bringing the best of all the labs together. Definitely. And you've name-dropped Shibendu twice. You're going to give him a big head when he listens to this. Oh, I, I like Shibendu. <laughs> I, I don't mind saying So do I. Right? He's a good colleague. Um, Yo, I agree. Definitely, definitely. So, yeah, he's great. And maybe we'll get him on the show at some point as well. Um, okay, cool. So now I want to talk about electrification. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but let's focus in on it a little bit more. Um, I think we both agree that electrification is in itself something great, right, and can be useful, but it also is an opportunity for the IC engine, right? The electric motors and IC engines can really complement each other. So I want to get your take on that, and how do, how do you think we can be uh, going forward with these two technologies together? So one thing I'll say on the front end, I, I do realize that having uh, an engine and electrification on board is expensive, and, and I know that's going to always be a challenge. So I I don't want to ignore that, but with that said, there's all, as you know, there's a whole range from micro hybrids to, I'll say, series and parallel hybrids, you know, the full full gamut to range extenders, which is maybe an extreme case. The advantages, though, I, I think are huge when you combine the two. For example, uh, say eliminating idle or low load operation where emissions are a challenge or um, efficiency is low using it for peak shaving. And what I mean by that is maybe you have a downsized engine, but you can use uh, the, electric, the electric motor to get the power density you need. You, know, you combine it with the engine. Maybe you eliminate the need for catalyst protection. So you can design uh, a more effective catalyst that because it's a narrower operating range, work your way through transients. There's so many things I think you can do with the combination. And another one I, I think is real interesting, and I haven't seen anybody do much in this, but you know, what if, I don't know if this is possible, but I'll say it anyway. What if you can modify the, the combustion pot process through piston speed control? So, you know, a lot of what happens in the combustion process is driven by some ignition delay, especially when you're looking at stratified reactivity. Uh, could you accelerate through those periods to avoid abnormal events or types of combustion you don't want to happen? So I just throw that out there. I think what we can do with it uh, that combination still to be learned. Uh, I don't know what we can all do, but I, there's some really low-hanging opportunities. Again, cost is an issue, so I don't want to completely ignore that. Yeah, right. I, I agree. I agree. Lots of opportunities left, but we do need to be aware of cost as well. Can I give you one more example? S yeah, Something sure. I find really interesting is there was a, a company called Speed. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Mm, and doesn't, they, they're okay. gas turbines. And they used a gas turbine with electrification um, to make refuge trucks. And so it was a range extender, but instead of it, it being like a, an emergency backup if, if the battery runs out, it was part of the answer. And why I, why I wanted to use that as an example, because I thought it was kind of an extreme example where, you know, maybe you're going to run new types of engines. Maybe it's not a reciprocating engine, maybe something else which has more of a, a narrow band of operation or it's got trouble with start and stop or, or whatever. But combining it with electrification makes it a, a viable uh, power plant for a vehicle. I mean, gas turbines on their own, 
people who've tried them, and there's been a lot of challenges to that. And, and this ride speed company, uh, combined with electrification, have found something that, that worked. I thought it was a really interesting example what they did. Yeah, so I'm not sure I'm familiar with that example, but I know we've done uh, CFD simulations of microturbine range extenders. Um, yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, so that is a possibility as well. Of course, we don't want to get rid of the IC engines completely, but we can throw some gas turbines in there as well. There you go. Or, or, or so many other solutions. Um, exactly. There's a, here, here's an interesting one to Google uh, is uh, an aluminum air battery and okay. how they use that with a lithium-ion battery because it has to trickle down to the lithium-ion battery, and they built a prototype with 1,000 miles of range. So it's combining this interesting energy storage um, device with electrification anyway you can edit that out <laughs> it's no i'm leaving out. that i'm all, all the best stuff you're saying you're asking me to edit that <laughs> that's definitely staying um okay so thanks for uh talking about electrification and for talking about the labs i think i think these are all really exciting topics that i think the audience is really going to get a kick out of hearing your your voice on but this other question here we've talked about this before and I know you think a lot about the possibility of a renewable liquid fuel-based energy future, right? You think about that quite right. a bit from, I do. from our conversations. Yeah. And I'm intrigued by that as well. Um, can you talk about, first of all, what do you mean by that? And what might this mean for the IC engine's future? Sure. The, you know, what the future is for renewable fuels or net zero fuels or net zero carbon fuels or however they want to call them, is, it's very unclear. One thing I do know is almost every major company has a plan or they're working on a plan to head toward net zero carbon or low carbon. Everybody has a different target, you know, by 2050. Um, and how do you, how you really do that? I don't know. Uh, I'm excited about everybody's thinking about it, working it, and we'll, it'll be interesting to watch where this goes. But one thing I find really interesting is when you look around the world, some of these countries, they simply couldn't, they couldn't be 100% renewable for whatever reason, whether it's, it's climate, um, resource, other resources, what have you. So, so there was an article, a series of articles recently that really caught my eye where Germany and Australia were talking, basically, in Australia, I mean, they have lots of opportunity for solar. So there was a discussion of making solar fuels, so I'm not sure if that was methanol or what, but e-fuels, you know, a lot of electricity, and shipping them to Germany. And we were talking nation months of stored energy. And what that says to me is liquid fuels. It's the only way you're going to store nation months of energy and move it around the world. Um, so, you know, something to think about it is the future common commodity of the world and the currency of the future world, stored energy in a liquid form. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but it's interesting to think about. And if that is the case, if you flash forward 50 years and we're, we're shipping renewable energy all, all over the world, what does that mean for the IC engine? Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to take this liquid fuel, make electricity, and charge a vehicle. Well, maybe you would. Maybe there's some places you want to do that, and there's a reason to do that. But if you have a lot of liquid fuel on hand, um, there's going to be a big market to just burn it directly. It's the most efficient path. So it, it's it's a complex problem, and it's one point, but I, I do think it's interesting to think about what that might look like. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, just another reason why 
we need to keep improving the IC engine. We don't necessarily know what the future is going to hold. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like thinking about that as well. So, um, and actually you brought that up to me. So thank, thanks, thanks for that. I think about that quite a bit now. Now, do you have any projects coming up that we haven't already talked about, but things that are coming up that our listeners might be interested in learning about? So uh, there are, there, there's several really exciting things happening at, at NTRC and um, they're focused more on broader systems, but I see it as an interesting opportunity for, for engines and, and various vehicle powertrains. So one of them is the team is very focused on developing a, a virtual physical research environment. They like to call it a virtual physical proving ground. And the best way for me to describe this is imagine you have a virtual world and you, then you have virtual and real hardware interacting in it. Uh, for example, we have a, a steerable chassis dynamometer um, that we just installed, oh, maybe maybe six months ago. So you can put a vehicle on it. It's got hub motors. Um, you can put it in a, front of a screen of a virtual world and drive around in that virtual world. That's the whole idea. Uh, but now imagine if you could put a an artificial intelligence-based controller for cabs and put a cabs vehicle in there and just let it drive um, and let it learn in this world. So it's this virtual world, thinks it's in a real world, even to the point you're spoofing sensors and things like that. And the power here is, uh, I'll give you an example related to this. One of our, our team members who is expert in AI uh, has developed a lot of these AI control algorithms for cabs. And, and when he runs simulations, you know, sometimes they'll drive on the left side of the road. Sometimes they're very good at hit and runs, you know, so you wouldn't do that in a real car, but you want to do it with real hardware. This gives you a way to do this. Um, and then adding into that, uh, say you have some interesting new engine technology or hybridization technology, and you have it running on a hardware in the loop dynamometer, and then you wrap a vehicle model around it. The idea is then through what we're calling connected laboratories into this environment, you could run that powertrain under these quote unquote quote real world conditions and have it interacting with other technologies and see how it behaves and understand what the potential real world emissions are of that. So I'm really excited about that, um, this virtual world that we're able to connect into with different laboratories. And then related to that, there's something else that, that really it's that same team working on um, called Summit, Summit to the Streets. And Summit is Oak Ridge's supercomputer. And the whole idea is to bridge the expertise and resources all the way from high performance computing to AI, to hardware in the loop, um, to on-road, um, just going the full gamut. And that's still under development um, and it's been proposed and, and they have some really interesting plans. So that's one I'm anxious to watch and see where that goes. So as I mentioned earlier, the, the power of all these resources brought together is just amazing. A lot of opportunity going forward. Wow, that sounds very exciting. Um, and, you know, I'm going to have to take, once we're allowed to travel again and, and things like that, I'm going to have to make a trip out to Oak Ridge. You know, I've never, I don't think I've ever been to Oak Ridge on site. Wow, that that's just wrong. We'll have to, we'll definitely fix Yeah, why that. haven't you invited me already? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Mentally, no, we'll I have. To, have. No, you have, actually. Yes, you have. You have. <laughs> But uh, it didn't work out that time or those times. Um, but we definitely we definitely need to rectify that uh, once things are back to normal. Um, very exciting. So, wow, you gave us a lot of information. We touched a lot of different topics. 
Uh, this is going to be another great episode. So I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all of your thoughts with us. I do have one more question, and it's something I'm asking all of the guests. We kind of want to end on a lighter note here. Uh, what is one fun fact about you that our listeners might not be aware of? Okay. Um, my fun fact isn't as fun as Gina Fioroni's, of course, but uh, seven yeah, or eight it's hard. Years it's ago, hard to compete. It's hard to compete with that one. <laughs> so seven or eight years ago, though, I, I did run a hundred mile endurance race, um, and, and did okay. I was middle of the pack finisher of those that finished. I think I finished uh, one thirty nine out of two fifty or something like that. Um, and it was. I remember talking to Gina about this at the time. But it's because it was when she was finishing up running uh, fifty marathons in fifty states. And I had, had just done this, this hundred mile race. And so it's, you know, I, I wish I was in that shape still. I, I hope to get back there, but it was a personal challenge to myself because I never physically pushed myself. And I, my, my progression was, Hey, I've never run. I'm going to go run a marathon. And I did that. And I thought, you know what? That hundred miler seems kind of interesting. So I did that. It took me 29 hours and seven minutes. And it's I I'm over here laughing because you're saying I think I finished like 139 out of 250 or something like that like as if you don't know that number exactly <laughs> I, I don't know the total I know roughly what the I remember the time for sure because of oh, the got 30 it, got hour it. cutoff and for okay. those of you that that know John's story um, uh-huh. who, who's a great emission controls guy John's a uh, hundred miler too and he paced me the last 50 miles and and kind of took care of me as I was coming in oh that was nice. Lots of fun. Yeah, that, that's that's a great fact. So thanks for sharing that. So that's really it, Robert. Um, again, I really appreciate you for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun for me. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Oh, it was a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate the invite, uh, Kelly. Was, yeah. I, I enjoy yeah, these of kinds of discussions. Yeah, of course. So do I. So, And we'll definitely have to uh, rectify the Oak Ridge visit thing soon, and maybe we can hug some engines there at Oak Ridge together. That, that sounds awesome. I look forward to it. Yeah. Okay, Robert. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. Okay. That's it for episode 10 of the Eclectic Highway. And I can't believe we're already on episode 10. Man, time flies. I really had a good time uh, speaking to Robert on this episode. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. I certainly did. Um, I do want to remind everyone that you can subscribe to this podcast on, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, pretty much anywhere where you listen to podcasts. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. And just remember, the future is eclectic. Eclectic.